friends, and welcome back to Unfeigned Christianity, where we seek to reconcile our human experiences with God and His Word so that we can love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. I hope you guys have been having a good week here. Uh, as always, if you want to support this work, one of the best ways to support the work is through becoming a member of Unfeigned Christianity. So just go to asherwhitmer.com forward slash member, and you will see how you can become a member and the different benefits that you get as a part of your membership is just $10 a month. Uh, one of those perks is you get expanded versions of these podcast episode, episodes. And then the other perk or benefit is that you get two deep dive essays a month. The last deep dive essay we did was called, When Should I Talk to My Children About Sex? So if that's a question you've had, you know, when is it too early, too young, even maybe how to do it, uh, go ahead and check out that deep dive essay. Uh, the one before that, we did a deep dive even deeper. It was a pretty extensive deep dive into 1 Corinthians 11. What's the big deal about the head covering? The one coming up in probably the end of next week is when I will publish it is called Raising Kids While Struggling with Depression. And so if you have faced uh, seasons of depression, um, maybe seasons of anxiety and just tremendous internal struggle in your soul, especially if you've been a parent and trying to navigate that and process that while raising kids. Uh, I trust this essay will be meaningful and helpful for you. So check it out. It's just $10 a month, part of the membership. It's been about two weeks since SCOTUS, Supreme Court of the United States, leaked. There was this leak that they are planning to overturn Roe v. Wade. And so I just thought today I'm going to take some time and discuss what this would mean and so just how we as Christians think about this and process this. So I don't have, it's it's always easier and more enjoyable to have a conversation like this with another partner and someone to interview or just someone else to discuss this with. I have several interviews lined up in episodes that I'm looking forward to releasing later, but they they were not able to schedule until a week or two from now. And so I have a couple week period here where I wasn't really sure what I'm going to do for the podcast, but I decided, well, hey, let's uh, let's talk about this SCOTUS leak. On Saturday, my family is going to be flying back east. My brother's getting married. And so we'll be busy for the next couple of weeks. I just thought, well, maybe since I don't have an interview, I will just hop on and, and have a, a short discussion, uh, some thoughts on this SCOTUS leak and what that could mean and how we as Christians can can process it. I'd love to hear your feedback. If you have any thoughts, maybe in response to this episode, or maybe, maybe this is something you've been diving in deep for many years now, I'd love to hear what your take is. You can share in the comments, you can message me or leave a review on iTunes or however, but that's what we're going to, we're going to jump into this SCOTUS leak for today's episode. So a couple of weeks ago, there was an article that talked about how SCOTUS, Supreme Court of the United States, plans to overturn Roe v. Wade. And I actually have not even read, I, as I understand it, there's kind of two proposals being put forward to rethink or reevaluate this 
Supreme Court decision that had been passed back in 1973. I haven't even really read the proposals. Um, one I think is by Justice Alito and another one is by Justice Roberts, perhaps. I'm not really going to talk about that. There's there's a lot of information. I'm sure you guys have, have been following this more than what you're getting from Unveiling Christianity. I just wanted to look at some dynamics that I think in our conversations we can often neglect or forget. I think it was in 2020, before the elections, I made the statement, I forget if it was on the podcast or in a blog post or on social media, I don't even remember where it was, but I made the statement that the Roe v. Wade probably will never be overturned. And so I look at this and the fact that, wow, they, they might be overturning it. And I think in, in many ways, it feels like a miracle to me. The reason I said it probably will never be overturned is, is just the history of precedent and how the Supreme Court handles precedent. They usually don't overturn. There's been many times where, where they could have overturned it and they chose not to even uh, in 2020. I forget exactly what the decision was, but it, it was a majority conservative court. And yet they had made a decision that went in the way of of women's rights and largely based on precedent supreme court really clings to precedent having said that now we're seeing they may overturn it and there's there's a couple justice alito justice robert are drafting ideas uh, proposals for why to reconsider the roe v wade decision and i just my initial response to the concept, the possibility that Roe v. Wade would be overturned is, first of all, I think it's a miracle. I, I, I think that's great. And then secondly, and this is what I was kind of talking about back in 2020, was uh, a lot of people have hinged their reason for voting on, you know, to overturn abortion. There's actually very little data that this... There's kind of mixed data, I guess you should say. And obviously, we won't know for sure until it actually happens. But that overturning it at a federal level will inherently reduce abortions. Um, or, or, sorry, word that kind of wrong. Um, will reduce them any more rapidly than what they are being reduced. Abortions are going down. There are fewer abortions happening today than there were at the time of Roe v. Wade being put in place. So we praise God for that progress. And, and we look forward to more progress. But another and probably a bigger concern of mine is that I hope we as Christians and conservative Christians, whether you vote or not, whether you get involved in being a part of the political process of America or not, I hope we don't mistake that the heavy lifting is done with. When, when the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, I hope we don't mistake that now the heavy lifting is done and we can kind of sit back and we are no longer a nation that supports the killing of babies. I'm really grateful that Roe v. Wade is being overturned. Um, America has had abortion rights that are far more liberal than any other country in the world. And so this is a necessary thing to consider and something I have prayed 
for and, and hope for appealed for two governing leaders, even though I don't, I haven't voted in my life. Um, I am grateful that this, this process is at least put back into the states. Obviously, it doesn't even at a legal political standpoint, it really doesn't solve anything other than that people can collect to their states where they want to express their particular rights instead of it being a federally mandated thing that is sweeping across all states. But as Christians, we understand that any act of politics is just a, a posturing, is just a trying to, to make things go well for society in this life, like while they're living on this earth. This is trying to govern a particular portion of the world that humans are inhabiting, right? We know that ultimately Jesus is king, and one day Jesus is going to come back and he's going to judge all of Babylon, all earthly nations, and all the people who just walk in the way of the beast, as opposed to people who uh, walk in the way of the lamb and, and pursue the ethics in the king of the kingdom of God and, and pursue righteousness. So we should, we are not looking at issues like this political issues from the standpoint of yes, Republicans want to overturn Roe v. Wade. And so therefore let's just get Republicans in and then the kingdom of God will be advanced in America. There's a lot more as we address any issue, any issue that surfaces in politics is going to be a human issue, right? It's going to be a human experience that the gospel has something to say about, has something to do with. And so as Christians, as Jesus followers who carry and embody and inhabit the gospel, what is our approach to these issues? What is our approach to abortion? And one thing that is, is really sad is how many people are very vocal about abortion and being anti-abortion and they're voting they get politically wrapped up into a particular ideology but actually are doing very little in everyday life and in grassroots encounters to to mitigate abortions and to actually stop what is causing abortion and so there is a lot about abortion and the abortion conversation, pro-life conversation. I, I think I'll frame it a bit more as pro-life conversation that we have been handed, especially if you're me, you're 31 years old, you're somewhere between 20 and 40, you've been handed a particular narrative that is relatively recent. It's, you know, maybe as, as recent as post Roe v. Wade. But maybe it's before then, maybe it's from the 50s or so. And, and we have a, a mindset about what conservative Christians believe that we think is just inherent, and it wasn't necessarily. One of those is that there were a lot of conservative Christians who actually supported Roe v. Wade at the time. Um, there were a lot of the, the SBC, Southern Baptist Convention, were, supported the, a woman's right to choose what to do with the fetus in her body up until the 1980s. Uh, there were statements that were put out that expressed support for Roe v. Wade or for a woman's right to choose. And so when it comes to the, the, the church's position on abortion, it's, it's a complex mess. It's not 
as if conservative Christians have always had this this particular mindset against abortion. And some of that has to do with science and things we have discovered about fetus and about the baby. There was a, a period of history where, where, I mean, if, if you're like my wife and I, every time we've had kids and we, our oldest is eight and our youngest is a year and a half. Every time we've had kids, we've been able to go in and hear the heartbeat. And if we wanted to, we've never paid for this. It's a little bit more than what our our health insurance covers but if we wanted to we could get a video of that little baby growing in the womb and so all of that is is technology that has been developed since roe v wade that we are beneficiaries of like we, we see that and we see that there is a human being it's not just a blob of matter but there's head there's hands there's little fingers being formed and and as it grows and gets bigger it, it begins to move around more aggressively and and it just is bigger and so the mom begins to feel it there used to be an era of history where people didn't think the baby was alive until what they called the quickening in the womb where the mother began to feel the baby in the womb and even christians believe that the baby had no soul until the, the period of quickening. And so some of the complexity of how Christians have viewed abortion and some of the complexity around the rise of the pro-life movement has to do with science that has developed since. So it is a historic reality that the church and the Christian church, Christian theology has precedent we were talking about precedent earlier there's precedent within christian theology to value those who who cannot speak for themselves to protect their life and to not take advantage of their life and definitely not take their life and some people will come and say well christians used to support abortion and so now they're being duplicitous there's other disingenuous motives for why they are so gung-ho pro-life right now the reality is that's not the whole story. Part of why people would have supported a woman's right to choose is the lack of scientific knowledge that we now have today that says definitively there's something alive in the womb, even when we can't see it or feel it all the time. But another aspect to this whole conversation is the complexity of the rise of the pro-life movement. And there kind of with that is the reality that Christians were not coalesced or solidified around the issue of abortion as a, a political voting issue until quite a ways after, like several years after Roe v. Wade. And it kind of rose out of the desegregation movement. Randall Balmer has written uh, fairly extensively on this. He recently came out with a, a book called Bad Faith. I believe it was the end of 2021 where he published it. That traces how the rise of the pro-life movement was birthed in many ways to circumvent the IRS revoking the tax exemption status of certain conservative Christian schools who did not want to desegregate. And so when you read his book, you, you come away with this strong notion that, wow, pro, the pro-life movement was born out of a racist movement because they wanted to continue their, their 
they wanted to continue their segregation without being penalized in their taxes. And so they created or they coalesced around the issue of abortion and got the church and Christians to vote about abortion because that would put in place Republicans, namely Ronald Reagan or someone who actually was pro-abortion, has, has had voted for abortion at some points in his political career. But a Republican would not infringe upon them. They would keep the state out of their how they choose to handle their school and therefore not demand that they desegregate in order to have a tax exempt status. There is a, an interesting Twitter thread that I saw someone I, who I follow shared, shared it. And I do not know the person who, who wrote this Twitter thread. His name is Andrew Lewis. I'm going to link the Twitter thread in the episode notes so you can go and read because it's really it's really good, kind of gives some nuance maybe that uh, Randall Balmer, I don't think you, you need to read Randall Balmer's work for yourself. There's a lot of people, and I think perhaps I have even done this at time, and kind of extrapolate out of the book one narrative uh, pointing to why the Republican Party is kind of seen as a racist party. That's not inherently all that Randall Balmer is trying to say. So I think sometimes he gets his work gets mistreated. But Andrew Lewis in this Twitter thread does a really good job of tracing the complexity. First of all, how Christians have historically had a position against abortion, um, but some of the complex dynamics around that and why not everybody, why there wasn't a coalesced movement against abortion until after Roe v. Wade. Um, so he does a really good job of that. He also does a pretty good job of explaining some of the nuance about the rise of the right and the conservative right and how, yes, racism and, and kind of the, the refusal to desegregate was a part of that, but that's not the only thing that's there. We need to, we need to see a fuller picture for that. So I'm not going to read through. It's a pretty lengthy Twitter thread, but I am going to link it into the show notes and just my, my point in bringing all this up is to highlight the fact that there is complexity to the historical movement of the conservative right. to what we have today where it's a strong anti-abortion movement. There's complexity to that that is sometimes confusing to people who do not share pro-life values and then sometimes completely lost on those of us who grow up in an environment where conservative Christians just are pro-life and anti Roe v. Wade. We don't always understand why some people are, are very strongly against the pro-life movement, why some people are strongly against Republicans call them a racist Republican Party or something. And so my challenge in this episode is I hope, first of all, I hope that we don't mistake the fact that Roe v. If, Re if Roe v. Wade is overturned, I hope we don't mistakenly think the heavy lifting on the abortion issue is done. It's not really. Like, I like, I cheer this, this decision, and I think it's a movement in the right direction. But the heavy lifting comes from you and I as we engage with the people who are actually 
faced with the the challenge of of contemplating whether or not to get an abortion. And I'm going to talk in just a moment. I'm going to dive into that a little bit further. But then the other thing, the other challenge that I would leave us with is, are we willing to investigate the history around abortion, around Roe v. Wade, but even the history around the movements we find ourselves caught up in right now? I think we, I think we should do that. I think, I think we should do that with... On, on my blog, I've, I've done a series of processing critical race theory, how Christians should process critical race theory. And some of that series might sound like I'm saying, wait a second, don't kick it out. Don't be anti-CRT. Don't, uh, don't be against this movement. And some of y'all are saying, hey, you need to investigate the history of it. I absolutely agree with that. That's part of why I'm I address the issue on the blog. We need to investigate the history of the movements we find ourselves caught up in. But alongside that, we need to investigate the history of the anti-CRT movement. And so let's investigate all the movements we find ourselves caught up in. And one of those would also be the pro-life movement. I feel in the last couple of years, as I've addressed racism, as I've addressed kind of politics and, and been fairly critical of Christians' infatuation with Trump, a lot of people have, some people, I don't know that it's fair to say a majority or not, I don't know. There's been a lot of people who, who've been supportive and, and uh, understand where I'm coming from, but some people have kind of put me in this leftist box. And for a while, I tried to crawl out of it. And then I realized, like, we hardly know each other. We don't know each other other than what they read from my blog or interaction online. And so for me to try to convince them that I'm not a leftist doesn't work because they've put me in that box and I can't crawl out of it. And so I'm a little nervous. I've been a little nervous to to dive into this issue because I'm afraid that everybody will somebody is going to think that I'm saying what I'm saying because I'm actually a leftist. I'm a hidden spy leftist in the church, a part of a conservative Anabaptist church or something. <laughs> and, and so I guess I just ask that you bear with me and, and let's look at this issue a little bit more holistically. So just to provide some context, I grew up in northern Minnesota in a small town called International Falls, Minnesota. It's no large Mennonite community up there or anything, but there's a lot of Christians. And one of the things about it is it's very monolithic in nature. Like there's not many different ethnicities. A lot of people that are up there have long ties, like their families have been born and raised for generations up there. And so it's kind of just good old rural, small town USA. When I was 17, my family moved to Los Angeles. And ever since then, I have lived in neighborhoods and in communities where my ethnicity was a minority ethnicity, where I have been interacting and, and doing church and community with people who have drastically different socioeconomic levels and backgrounds than what I do. So my world has been drastically, uh, my, my worldview, I should say, has been drastically reshaped as I, as I get to know other people, other Christians, some non-Christians. Uh, my wife and I spent three years in Thailand living overseas, and, and we have a lot every day, even here in the States, we have cross-cultural interaction. We do, we do uh, church community with, with people of different backgrounds. We do 
neighborhood community like all our neighbors around us are different they look different than us they they have a different uh history a different familial story and so a part of that has been having some assumptions that i had about people confronted and realized ooh that's not inherently true one of those assumptions would be have would have to do with abortion and that thinking that the reason people want to get abortion is because they want to just have sex however much they want and they don't really care they, they're being frivolous in their sexual life and then they don't want the responsibility of kids and so they want to just be able to abort and so this is inherently immoral inherently um sorry the the I agree, abortion is inherently immoral. What I mean is, is it's coming from a place, a desire for something that is inherently immoral, just frivolous sexual fulfillment. And, um, and it's, it's self-centered and there, there are other, like those people could just kind of suck it up as it were and be responsible parents, but they're choosing to just have frivolous lifestyle. That's not always the case. <laughs> and there's so many things in life where it's like, well, yeah, that is the case sometimes, but there's many other aspects to it that we kind of forget. And what's interesting is, is one of the main reasons women get abortions is because they don't feel they will be a good enough mom. They, they won't be able to take properly take care of the baby. And that can range. That's fairly vague, you know, um, is that just kind of like a sense of like in a sense of insecurity? Like, I don't know that I'm going to be a good mom. I think every mom at some point feels that way, especially with their first child or two. But there's an element that I would like us to digest a little bit. I'm just going to pause it out there and then I challenge us to go. And I, I think I, I will try to link in the in the episode notes some studies. We just go and do some of our own research. And that is that the majority of abortions, first of all, happen from people who are in, from impoverished communities. Like they, they don't have funds and finances that would enable them to be able to take care of their child well. The other thing is that it's often really young girls and really young people and and kind of with that or simultaneously or alternatively to it sometimes is that a lot of these pregnancies are happening because the women are being violated so as christians we if we really are pro-life we need to find ways to not only be supportive and vocal to our governing authorities and desiring that they choose the way of pro-life, we also need to enter these really messy stories. And I mean, not always are they super messy, but sometimes they are really messy. And it's going to ask something of us, you know, to, to be pro-life in the sense of I want Roe v. Wade overturned, that doesn't really ask anything of me. At the very most, it might ask me to go vote for someone who might overturn Roe v. Wade. But if we're actually going to be a people pro-life, a people who value life and who value babies growing up in an environment where they can thrive and where they can have uh, 
healthy relationships with their mom, with their dad, with their parents, have opportunities to to succeed in life with with good education and and so forth, then we're going to have to find ways to care for the mom. We're going to have to find ways to not just stand back in judgment of the men and be like, we have a male issue and we have a morality issue. And, And sometimes these conversations are just super, I don't know, just kind of strike me as like, I, I don't know. Sometimes it's, it's just like unaware. And then other times it's just arrogant. And, and so I'm not sure what all it is, but yes, we have a moral dilemma. We have people who, who are kind of functioning out of their feelings and their sexual desires more than any sense of conviction and, and value for life sometimes. But at the same time, Simply saying that doesn't do anything, doesn't really move the needle toward helping those men or helping those couples become more equipped and more morally, more, more moral. Um, I, I know a number of men who really love their kids, but can't fathom being married. And a large reason for that is they have no familial context for a marriage commitment. It's just generationally not been there. And so I think sometimes we think we can just kind of come in and teach the the biblical ethics of marriage and family. And we don't realize like how, not only does it look hard, it's foreign, it's completely foreign. And and there's, there's nobody else around them doing it. And so, it's paving a, a new way forward. And so we see someone who's paying uh, child support for three, two or three kids to one, one lady because he had several kids with her. And then somebody who's paying child support for two other kids with this other lady because he had children with her. And, and you look at half their paycheck maybe going to child support and the more the more kind of different women someone might have children with the more children you're likely to end up having as opposed to having a marriage committed relationship where we we kind of maybe regulate it to every 2 years or something within less within 10 years you have 5 or 6 kids and you're paying out the same amount support that's been, you know, a government designed number that is usually somewhere between two fifty and three hundred dollars. And if you have five kids that you're paying that for, that's like fifteen, twelve, fifteen hundred dollars that you're paying every month just for child support. But then, as a single mom, uh, the, those mothers are getting tax benefits, and so to get married, it could it could hinder their tax benefits. And so there's there's a lot of complexity that goes into walking someone into a conviction or a understanding of family is meant to be between a husband and wife who are committed to each other for life. I'm not saying we don't do that. I'm not talking about all this for the purpose of saying, oh, we shouldn't expect people to have committed families and, and we shouldn't. Uh, be grieved by the abortions that happen, but rather I'm, I'm 
sharing all this to try to paint a picture, even though it is vague, I'm not using specific stories, to paint a picture of many different dynamics that need to happen for a mom to feel good about having a baby. And the, the mother gets left with all that, right? The, the mother gets left with caring for the kids. The mother gets left with, yes, the husband needs to, or the, the father, maybe, maybe they're not husbands, but the father needs to get paid support, child support. But at the end of the day, like she's probably going to have the child more often than not. And so she's going to have a lot of responsibilities. It's going to be harder for her to work. It's going to be harder for, for her to uh, financially support the kids. And so all this to say that let's be careful in our excitement and in our exuberance of Roe v. Wade. And by me saying, let's be careful, I I actually have not, I don't go on social media a whole lot these days. Um, And so I'm not saying that, oh, it seems like a bunch of people have been really, really uh, unhealthy in this way. I'm just, I'm just kind of posing this as anybody listening, that it can be a way of helping us think through this. So I'm not trying to target out any any one person or any group of people in particular. But I just hope that we are careful that we're aware of the fact that there are some people, this news is going to sound really scary to them because there are, they, they don't see very clearly ways forward for how they can have babies and care for them well. Those of us who are pro-life also need to think about free contraceptions, a, a safety net that these mothers and these families can, can have to help care for their children. And some of this might be a bit volatile because these are kind of the the way we typically think of these solutions or issues is in terms of politics. I'm I'm not trying to present that like, oh, we should be voting for welfare and all these things. Rather, I'm just trying to highlight ways women need some support, whether that comes from a private organization or the church or the government. I don't know. Um, I think I think it's less clear in scripture that that should not come from the government than what some of us might think. We really don't want government helping out. And I personally would prefer government not to get involved into our personal lives. At the same time, I know how far some government assistance can go in helping someone navigate hard times in life. And so I don't, I don't know, does it come from the government? Should it come from the church? Should it come from private organization, nonprofits? I don't know, but, but we need, women need to have access to free contraceptions so that, so that they can plan their family and not just be, uh, not just be at the mercy of men who might be forcing them into, into sex. There needs to be a social safety net. And, and what all that means 
again, don't just assume I'm talking about welfare. I'm like, let's be imaginative. Let's, let's think of ways that we as a people can develop safety nets for people in our community or people we're trying to, to reach and, and care for single moms, um, paid maternity leave. Like if, if a mom is working and, and then she gets pregnant, that, that she can get paid while she's pregnant. That should be embedded into our businesses. And what's, I guess what's a little baffling to me at times is that those things that I just highlighted, a lot of people in the pro-life movement are also very much against those. And so I'm, I don't always understand some of the duplicity, I guess, that it feels like we, we need to care if, if, if the baby's going to be like, if we want babies to be birthed and brought to full term, then we need to make sure that the mothers have an environment where they can, where they can bring them and know that, that they're not going to end up. I think, I, I guess, uh, I just interrupted myself here. I guess a, a clear example of this is when you, you don't have a house and you're getting ready to get married, or maybe you're moving to a new location, you don't have a home and there's this fear. I don't know if you've dealt with this. I've, I've dealt with it, but there's this fear. Like, what if, what if we end up without a home and like, where, where are we going to put our families and where, you know, my family, what, am, what are they going to do? You know, this anxiety of what if they end up on the streets? often super irrational, especially for me, because I've, I've really never been faced with that issue. But I, I still can, you know, fear that sometimes or like, got to make sure and, and get, you know, my paycheck so that I can pay the rent at the end of the month. And, and the fear, like when there's a low month, the fear that can, can flood over me when, when I'm not sure how we're going to pay for our rent. And, and there's a there's a very real fear that mothers have when they think of bringing in a child into their home. I'm a fear that even fathers, as careless as they were, as bad decisions, as bad as the decisions have been that they've made, um, they're still now faced with the reality. And sometimes I think that we, especially as conservative Christians, we can kind of stand off a little bit like you made that bad decision so now you're gonna end up going through that and you're gonna you're gonna be facing it it's like um when actually like the we are supposed to be caring for people even when they made a bad decision i think of um in first timothy four i think it is paul is talking to timothy about church leaders i'm sorry it's not timothy it's it's i think it's in Hebrews 4 or 5, Hebrews 5, where, where the author of Hebrews is recounting the high priests and how Jesus is like the, the high priest. Jesus is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. The author of Hebrews in chapter 5 talks about how the high priest taken from among men was able to be gentle with the wayward and the ignorant because he too was clothed in weakness. We, maybe there are wayward people, people who've made bad choices or the ignorant. They just, it's like, wow, how, how did you make that choice? How did you not know that was bad? We are to be gentle with them and we're to bear burdens with them because 
we are, are also clothed with weakness. Maybe I didn't make that bad decision, but I, I am clothed with weakness as well. Galatians 6 talks about bearing burdens. It says there's burdens. It says bear one another's burdens. And then a little bit later, it says bear each of you your own burden. And the burden that you bear is one that leads to sin. And the burden that you're supposed to bear yourself and not bear with each other is a burden that leads to a reward. And so when there's this problem in life that is leading someone, weighing someone down, and they're going to be sinning because of it, then that's that's the burden we should be leading into and bearing with them and helping them with. Another assumption that I have been confronted with in my time, in as, as my life experience and so forth has kind of shattered my worldview, my narrowed worldview, is that I used to think only lazy people were on welfare. And so people who got government assistance and welfare programs and stuff like they would just take advantage of it and not work very far. Now, part of the reason why that's a narrative is because it's sometimes true. But what's interesting is of all the people I personally know on welfare, that's not true at all. Like they are some of the hardest workers I know they get up early, 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning, take their kids to school, or run their kids to a place to, to be babysat for while they're at work, or and they work for 10 to 12 hours a day, and some of them are working almost minimum wage. And, and so it's not true that people who use government assistance programs are the lazy ones. Um, those government assistance programs for many, many people are simply helping them get by. And so, yes, are there people who, who can take advantage of that and, and they're being lazy and they're on drugs and all that? Yes, there are. But that's not, it's not true of everyone. And from my experience living in the city, I would say most people, it's not true. Most people are hardworking. They're, you might not see them because they woke up before you had to run their kids to daycare or something and are off at work and, and they're not, maybe they don't have a college degree or maybe they don't have a, a network of people that is able to land them a fairly decent paying job where they don't have to have welfare. And there's many dynamics, I'm not going to get into it in this episode, but many dynamics as to why living in the city can be so expensive. Um, but all that to say that I appeal, like I hope we don't mistake that because SCOTUS overturns Roe v. Wade, the heavy lifting for the issue is done. And then I hope that we're also willing to investigate and learn some of the history, the context that led to why Roe v. Wade was legalized and, and also what led to the pro-life movement and some of the complexity and even ugly parts of that movement. And then I hope that we realize kind of with the heavy lifting thing that there's a lot of other things we need to be supportive of, whether that's at a political level, I, I'm going to let that up to you, whether that's a political level, or whether that's something like our churches need to have some sort of net in place where we can care for, for single moms, or, or maybe it's just private organizations that are developed that can, can help mothers and and young families who would be susceptible to considering abortion. I know that there are churches out there that are doing that. I know that there are organizations out there doing that. And 
there are almost every city or every state has uh, pregnancy centers that are there, part of people from the pro-life movement. And so we need more of that. We need to move into that. I also know from people that work in some of those organizations that it's really hard to get other Christians to be involved in that work. And so if you want to move the needle forward positively when it comes to solving abortion, I don't know that we'll solve it in our lifetime, but if you want to move the needle forward, find a place to invest your money, to give your money. I don't even like using the term invest because it's probably going to mean taking an economic hit at some way or another. And then another way is find out how you can either babysit, you know, or care for for a young mom, or what, what can you do to develop a safety net or a network that a mom can fall back on so that she can care for her family well. The Church of Jesus Christ should be pro-life. We should be excited at any legislation that is put in place that that moves in the direction of not killing babies and honoring life. But that pro-life should transcend the womb and be pro-life for the family, the mom, and the baby as it grows up. Christianity is brought to you by our members at Patreon. As a part of the membership program, you receive two deep dive essays a month and expanded versions of all our podcast interviews. If you would like to become a member, visit www.asherwhitmer.com forward slash member. Unfeigned Christianity Podcast is also a part of two networks, the Restorative Faith Collective, where we have conversations about race, perspectives, and relationships in an Anabaptist context. To learn about more articles and podcasts, visit www.restorativefaithcollective.org. The second network is the Kingdom Outpost, where we talk about what it looks like to live as Jesus's nation in today's world. For more podcasts and articles, visit kingdomoutpost.org. Thanks for listening.